0: can hear them even as they leave. Well, good morning and welcome. This morning, we're going to talk about the church. We started a 5-week series. After we get through this, we're going to go back and study Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Last week we asked the question, what is the church? And we talked about the church being universal but yet local. We talked about the church being invisible, but yet visible. Some of that's going to come up today. But today the question is, what is church membership? And if you've ever just did a reading of your Bible, you've probably realized I never have seen a place where it just says specifically they joined the church. There was a membership process. And so hopefully... We're going to address that through these two texts that Alicia has just read. But by way of introduction, this week, the Gospel Coalition. uh, The Gospel Coalition is a ministry. You can actually get on their website, and I recommend it to you and them to you. Great sources of uh, spiritual food there. But they had an article this week that goes along with my sermon. This is the title of the article. It said, nothing on your phone, and then in parentheses it said, including the gospel coalition, so they're including themselves, nothing on your phone can replace the local church. Nothing on your phone can replace the local church. The big idea behind this article, if you read it, was this, Christians are not meant to be consumers. We're meant to be servants. That's the big idea. And Christianity is not merely content. It's an embodied, follow this, it's an embodied, lived-out community. So, to be a Christian is to be like Christ. And to be like Christ is to serve rather than to be served. In American Christianity, there is a real movement of consumerism. And that's not real Christianity. And so real Christianity is to come together as a body of Christ and to serve one another and to love one another. Um, To be certain, you can go online or go on your phone And because of the way society is set up now, you can hear some some of the best, world-renowned communicators and pastors, far better than me. That's out there for you all the time. So you can be served and get great content and listen to phenomenal communicators, and quite frankly, I do that. But what I'm trying to say is that's not the church. You see, we need to put ourselves in a community where we have to love one another, and we love one another in Christ. That's the local church. The church is a place where Christians serve one another. You see that in 1 Peter 4.10. The church is a place where Christians encourage one another. You see that in Hebrews ten. Twenty-five. It says, don't forsake the assembling, the coming together. Don't forsake that. In other words, if that's a command, you could take it one step further and say, it would be sin to not come together. If you just follow the logic there. In Romans 12, 10, it says, love one another with brotherly affection. And here's another way to say it. Outdo one another in showing honor. The church is a community profoundly oriented around loving others and serving the world beyond itself. One of my goals for us as a church, because the Lord has graciously used some of this older generation and even those that have gone on to be with the Lord, they've given us, us, these facilities. So many churches have hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of dollars hanging over their head that they can't give away. What I would like to see... And wouldn't this be so like Christ Is if this church could get to a place one day where we give away more money to the kingdom of God than we keep for ourselves? How honoring to Christ would that be? You see, a church is a community profoundly oriented towards the world around it. It's community. Not just, am I getting what I want right here? But are we giving away some of our best stuff to our community and serving our community and, and fighting social injustices in our community? Are we seeing every person as equal in the eyes of God? Some say, as, as it relates to maybe um, racism, well, I'm, I'm blind. I don't see, I don't see color. My response to that is God's not blind. God sees color and he celebrates it. He thinks it's awesome. That's why he created it. And so we have multi cultures and multi different ethnic groups. And those people, all those different groups, teach us something about our Creator that we cannot learn if we just stay in our little group. And so I'm for diversity and I'm not blind. I see color. And I think it's wonderful because my God thinks it's beautiful. So, what is church membership? Like Jonathan Lehman's definition from this little blue book right here, uh, church membership, I recommend it to you. It's by Nine Marks. And it's a, sh- it's a small little book. Even those of you that can't read or don't read much, don't like to read, you can read this book. It's really short. I've got four of them. And if you promise me you'll actually read it, when the sermon's over, I want you to come grab one if they're not all gone. And so you can read and understand more about church membership. Well, in Jonathan's book, I may have this on a slide, he has this definition of church membership. Now, I will admit to you, it's kind of clunky, and it's not that easy. It's not like you're going to memorize this before you leave. But there's a few things in this definition that I want to highlight for you, and that's why I show it to you. He says, church membership is a formal relationship between a local church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation an oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. So let me, let me hit a few things in this definition, and then I want to show you this in the Scripture and where this definition actually is biblical and grows out of the Word of God. But let me hit a few things, okay? Notice there are several elements that are present. It says, a church body formally affirms, so this would be the church body, and part of the church's job is to formally affirm an individual's profession of faith and baptism as credible. I don't know if you knew that. But as a church, part of your responsibility, if you're a member of a church, is to affirm someone else's faith. That's part of our responsibility. A church body formally affirms an individual's profession, and then also it promises to give oversight to that individual's spiritual growth. A church should be promising to give oversight to that person's growth. The individual formally submits his or her self, to the service and authority of this body and its leaders. So that person submits himself to that church for the oversight of their spiritual care. That church body says to the individual, this is what the church should do. We should say, we recognize your profession of faith, your baptism, and we want to walk with you in your discipleship and help you grow in Christ. Therefore, we publicly affirm and acknowledge you before the nations as belonging to Christ. The church should publicly say, we acknowledge this person as a true follower of Christ, and we will extend our oversight and fellowship to them. However, We live in a culture that seems to cringe at the word submit. Even in our marriages now, I know that we're crafting them so that the wife doesn't say, I would submit. And in our churches, we don't want to submit to an authority. So submitting or coming under an authority of a local church is not an easy topic for many, and maybe you're sitting here going... I disagree already with what you're saying. However, I don't think submitting is the real problem. People aren't afraid to submit. We submit to things all the time. They just don't want to submit to something that they might see as an imperfect entity. Something that's not really well run and really well put together, and I'm confident and I'm assured of it. And that's where the church bogs down a little bit and membership to the church bogs down a little bit. And here's why I say that. What is unexpected about Christianity is that it's hero. The hero of Christianity is who? Where are the children? Right now you say Jesus. The hero of Christianity is Jesus. But what's unexpected about Christianity is Jesus doesn't risk all for the beautiful damsel in distress, but rather Jesus risk everything for what the Bible calls, in Hosea at least, a harlot, a whore. The church is imperfect. The church is called a harlot in the book of Hosea. The church is a work in progress. And so when people think about church membership sometimes, remember I said submitting is not the problem. It's submitting to an imperfect entity. But then, take it a step further. The hero of Christianity, Jesus calls everyone he saves also to submit to this harlot. The harlot being the bride of Christ. She's still being made ready. She's a work in progress. Here's the thing. God calls all of us, and I believe I'm going to show it to you from the word in just a minute, to enter into this membership, into his local church. And you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to make the bride holy and pure because God knows that it's not. And therefore, the holiness and the purity of God's people is so, so important. And he also knows that unless we come together, we can't do that. It's like almost having multiple children and putting them in a a grinder thing. I don't know what you'd call it. Like, a, like a, a lottery thing that you spin. And they're rocks. Each of these children in there are these different rocks. Some have sharp edges on them. If you just put one rock in and spin it, the edges don't get knocked off very fast. But if you put a lot of rocks in there and you spin it, all of a sudden they start hitting each other. And it starts knocking the rough edges off. And if you're from a larger family and had a lot of siblings, you know what that's like. You just get beat up by your older brother and then your younger sister tells you to jump off this. And, then, and, and next thing you know, you come out maybe smoother and better. And that's the body of Christ. But when we won't go to church and be with God's people, how are we ever going to become holy? Holy and pure because honestly I come here and some of you say things to me at times that hurt and I think I don't like them in my flesh that's what I think but you know what God says to me so what they're your brother they're your sister you are to love them you see I can't stay home and watch my computer, and watch a sermon, and get that. And God knows that. He knows we have to come and be together. So, with all that, let's look at our text. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Let's read it again. If you would, look there with me. I'll give you a minute while I drink some water. If you're holding newborn babies, you're exempt, or just babies. Everybody else, I'd love for you to turn there. So in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, this is what it says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, Or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And old Peter. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That is unbelievable. If you get anything spiritually, if you understand even the smallest truth spiritually, you know who told, taught you that? Not me, not somebody else. The Father revealed that to you. Then Jesus tells him, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's an interesting phrase. And whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth should be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The most important question any of us will ever be asked and for sure the most important question you will ever answer in your life, I promise you, is not will you marry me, It's, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? And Peter, he says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Could you imagine if at that moment he just used a little sense of humor? Maybe he did and they didn't include it. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, Peter, you get your own board game. No. He said, Peter... Only the Father could have revealed that to you. Only him. So then he says to Peter, he says, on this rock, and I don't know if you know this, but Jesus only used the word church two times. Period. Two times. This is the first. Very first time Jesus uses the word church. He says, on this rock I will build my church. Now, Scholars, theological scholars, debate the meaning of this text, and it is riddled with debate. On Peter, he will build? Is that what this is saying? Or maybe other arguments, or is it on Peter's confession? Because Peter's confession is, you are the Christ You're the son of the living God. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, the way that they interpret this text across the board, and it's how the Pope got started and continues, is that Peter was the first in line of Popes. And that on Peter, I'll build the church. And so every Pope after them is in the successional line of Peter. And so, the Pope has authority, even over the Bible, to pardon sin, to say this is right and this is wrong, because of the way that they interpret this text. The way that we interpret this text, the way that I interpret this text, and honestly, the only way I can really see that it makes sense, is that Jesus is saying On that confession that Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'll build my church on that confession. I'll build my church on the people that know that and the people that believe that and will step out and act on that. That's what we'll build my church on. And so, this is the first time that Jesus mentions the church. But also, I want you to know that when he mentions the church here, going back a week, he's really talking about the church universal. He's not talking about the church local in this text. He's talking about all believers of all time. And that's important to note, because the second time Christ mentions the church, then he's talking about local. In a moment, we're going to get to Matthew 18, where Jesus talks about the local church. But then, he says in our text, he says, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is the it? The it is the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But if you're reading that text, you got to ask yourself the question... The gates really prevail? Don't gates just kind of sit there and keep people out or keep people in? That's what gates do. That's what gates are about. So it says that the gates of hell will not prevail. It sounds like troops are marching into heaven trying to cause havoc. The way I would explain this is it's a mixed metaphor. And the, Bible's you, the Bible uses mixed metaphors often. matter of fact, one way to think about it and you probably won't remember this I didn't remember this until I read it but in Jimmy the Cricket, y'all remember who Jimmy the Cricket is, Pinocchio, he tells them, he tells them, "You buttered your bread now sleep in it." That's a mixed metaphor. You know, you made your bed now sleeping. You buttered your bread now sleeping. I like sleeping the buttered bread every night, and then. that might be pretty good, especially when I'm on a diet. The Bible authors mix metaphors often. One of my favorite mixed metaphors I will read to you at the end of the service. It comes from Ephesians one eighteen. At the very beginning of the benediction that I read each week, it says, "Having the eyes of your hearts." enlightened. Well, stop right there. Hearts do not have real eyes. That's a mixed metaphor. But Paul is able to communicate something much more profound by mixing that metaphor. Because when we hear that, we go, hmm, Hearts have eyes. That God would give my heart eyes to see the truth, the spiritual truth. And it has a meaning to us, even though we know it's a mixed metaphor. So, the gates are used to keep people out or keep people in. They don't don't advance. Perhaps the best understanding of that text is that hell and Satan will not prevail against Christ's church. Jesus and his church will emerge victorious over Satan, hell, and death. Death itself cannot hold back the elect from God's call. They will come forth from death into life and into the light of the glory of God. That's what he's saying. That if you're his, hell itself can't keep you from coming. So, Christ has given the apostles and his people later in that text. He says, the keys to the kingdom and whatever you bind will be bound and what you lose will be loosed. You know what it means to get the keys to the kingdom? I never forget the first time my dad handed me the keys to his car. You know, that was going to be a good night or a bad one. Christ is giving the apostles the keys to the kingdom here. And he's saying, whatever you bind will be bound, whatever you lose will be loosed. Now, biblical scholars sometimes talk about binding and loosening as a rabbinic activity which is helpful to kind of understanding this. What I mean by rabbinic is rabbis, teachers, Jewish teachers. If they bound someone from something, they were bound. If a rabbi bound it from the Jewish people, they were bound from that thing. And if they said, it's okay, you can do it, then they were loosed. And so the concept comes from that. Jesus is essentially saying to the apostles, I'm giving you the authority to build the church. I'm giving you the authority to just like I did with Peter. When you hear a confession, you consider their life and you can announce, yes, this is a brother or sister in Christ. You have the keys And what you bind is bound, and what you loose is loose. Now, that doesn't mean that as a church, I know 100% sure that you are or are not a Christian. Only God would know that. But God, and through Jesus, has given to the apostles, and I'm going to show you in Matthew 18, and through them to the church, the authority to hear someone's confession, meaning, their profession of faith in Christ and say yes we believe they know the Lord we accept them into membership but that process should happen and when you don't go through that process you end up corrupting the peace and purity of the church because you allow people into the church that truly don't understand the gospel and then they get promoted all the way up in the church and they're making spiritual decisions and they have no Holy Spirit in them to do that. So the church has the keys and should be careful, careful about saying someone, yes, we believe and we affirm they are a follower of Christ. So now, Let's look two chapters later, Alicia read this, where Jesus uses the word church for the second and last time. We see the keys being put into use in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Look there with me. Matthew eighteen, fifteen through 20. If your brother sins against you, Go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. What did I say? If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. The keys of the kingdom aren't just given to the apostles, but tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, refuse him and treat him as a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, the church now has the authority to move him out of membership with that local church. Because what's happening right here is Jesus is telling them this can't be the universal church. This has to be a local body of believers. And there has to be some form of membership or else this whole process is impossible. You see? So church membership is in the Bible And there would be no way for them to know who to remove or even who to go to with the problem if the church wasn't local and there wasn't some sort of membership because he's going to get removed from that local body of believers. That's really, really, really important. Because remember what I said about the rocks bumping up against each other? Honestly, that's a good thing. Proverbs 14.4 says it this way. And you're not going to know what I'm talking about when I quote this. But this is what it says. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean. But much increase comes by the strength of the ox. So what did he just say? This is what I said. Where there's no bulls, there's no bull dung. But where there is bulls and bull dung, there's a mess. And there's also a lot of work that gets done. What I'm saying is the church must come together as a local body of believers and guess what you should expect? Dung. And a lot of it. And you know what that gives us an opportunity to do? To love one another, even in our sin. To show one another the gospel in the flesh. I love you, even though there's this problem. I love you, even though you sinned against me. I'm going to love you unconditionally. You see, we can't be the body of Christ if we don't come together as a local church. In this text in Matthew 18, Jesus is telling the local church how to deal with their problems. First step, you go to them privately. If they don't listen, you get a couple of brothers or sisters, and you go to them. But you need to have those witnesses, it says. And you tell them again. And if they don't listen then, you take it to the church. And if they won't even listen to the church, then you treat them as unbelievers. You know why you treat them as unbelievers? Because from the Old Testament all the way from Genesis to Revelation, God is really concerned, really concerned about his people standing out. And he draws a fine and big, bold line and he wants the the people to see these are my people because ultimately that's going to help them realize I need that I need that and it protects the church it keeps it pure it keeps it holy remember we are the church of Christ we want to present ourselves to God as spotless and holy and that is what Christ wants now You might be sitting there thinking, it feels like you're giving the church a lot of authority. I think the church has a lot of authority. But there's something else I want to add, and I hope I have this on a slide. What makes people acceptable to a church is not their own moral purity, but Christ. Not what they've done to save themselves, but what God has done to save them. That's what makes us acceptable to God. And so, at my last church, we did membership interviews. And I, was in, I did several of them, but in this particular interview, we were interviewing a man, and his wife uh, had already shared her story, And I was very confident that she understood the gospel. She talked about who Christ was and what he had done to save her. And then, even after hearing his wife talk about that, this man began to talk about how he was a good guy. And that his good, essentially, he didn't do his hands like this, but he said, you know, my good really outweighs my bad, and therefore, I think I should go to heaven. And so I thought, "Mm, maybe he just doesn't understand the question, right? So I started asking him other questions, kind of baiting him to get him to share the gospel with me. Because in the membership interview, that's what you're looking for. Do they really understand the nuts and bolts of the gospel? But when they start with, I'm a good person, it's like... "Eh." Nope. you don't even get your own free home game. It's not about being a good person. It's about understanding you're not a good person. And that apart from the saving work and atoning work of Jesus Christ, you'll die in your sins and spend eternity separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell. Without the gospel, we're hopeless. Hopeless as the pastor standing before you. I'm not a good person. Jesus says, there's nobody good except God alone. Do I struggle with sinful thoughts? Yeah. Do I struggle with sinful actions? Of course. I'm a sinner. Saved by the grace of God. And so, that's what we're looking for in a membership interview. But, That needs to be there before the church says, we hold you up as a follower of Christ. You come into our fellowship. We're going to take responsibility to shepherd you, to love you, to care for you, to see that you grow in grace, all of that. So perhaps you can see that membership in a local church Is much different than a typical volunteer organization or club you know when you join a club or a a golf membership thing or whatever you pay your dues and you become a member and then you receive goods and services and you should expect that because you're paying dues sometimes in the church People give their tithe and they've got a worldly perspective and they think, well, I'm paying a tithe. I should get what I want. And I think to myself, buddy, this ain't your local club. You know, this isn't a membership to a country club. You should come with a heart to serve. And you should come with a heart to love these other people. Now, I realize some of the older generation here Y'all have been serving and serving and serving and serving and serving for years. And there's a part of that that I want to acknowledge and, and let you off the hook and say, you know, I don't want you to be serving for the wrong reasons. And I've said this up here before that doing the right things for the right reasons is a hard thing. But let's say you're 90 and I know we got a few of those in the crowd. I still think as long as God gives you breath, as long as God gives you health and I'm not just saying this to the 90s but the youngers we should be looking for ways to serve the kingdom of God and to love the people of God all of our days and I tell you what, when you pass into the other world you don't have to do that anymore on this life I give you that You get to stop then. (laughs) The Bible, it's interesting, and I'll close with this illustration. Jesus, I said, talks about the church two times. He talks about the kingdom in the gospel of Matthew 49 times, the kingdom. He uses the word church twice. We looked at both of them. But the kingdom, he says, 49 times. However, here's the interesting part. Paul the apostle, in his letters, he mentions the church 43 times and the kingdom only 14. So what's going on? It's like they've, you know, hey, you talk about the kingdom, I'll talk about the church, and you talk about the church, and I'll talk about the kingdom. No. What's going on here is Jesus is talking about the kingdom because he's setting up Paul being able to talk further about the church. Because the kingdom of God in this world, and I want you to catch this. I think this is is a profound thought. The kingdom in this world is like an embassy. An embassy is an institution that represents another nation inside of another nation. So, for example, or another way to say it is it's one kingdom In another kingdom, God has his kingdom, which is his people, his true followers, and we're living in another kingdom, and the Bible says that this is not our home. We're strangers and aliens. We're a kingdom inside a kingdom. That's like an embassy. It's like an outpost. That's what what our lives as followers of Christ really are. For instance, I went to Mexico City for four months as a college student and I was the director of a project and one of the students lost their passport and we knew that wasn't good. And so we went to the embassy there, in the U.S. Embassy in Mexico and we pleaded for them to help us get another passport. And we knew if we don't get another passport, you can't go home with us. Now, when they gave him a passport, That didn't make him a U.S. citizen. He was a U.S. citizen anyway. But it validated it. It validated his citizenship. And what I'm saying is the church has that kind of role with God's people. Membership in God's church is a validation that indeed you belong to his kingdom. So. What if I told you there's another embassy, one that represents a place from the future? There's another embassy, and it represents a place from the future. You know what God calls it? The local church. It represents the whole group of people under Christ's lordship who will, at the end, gather. A Christian citizenship is in heaven. The Lord has placed a future nation, a future reality, in a current and present situation. There's only one place where the citizens of heaven can come at this moment and find official recognition and asylum. It's the local church. You're a citizen of heaven if you are a follower of Christ. The local church is your embassy. It's the place where the kingdom people come together. And you need your people. And I need your, his people. Every Christian should follow the Lord's lead. And every Christian should not just go to church, but be a member of a local church so that they can seek to serve in the most magnificent way Christ's kingdom and his people. Membership in his church is one of the greatest means of grace in your life. Let's pray.